I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be buried in an avalanche? Weird foreign feeling of despair. Or how it feels to crash a skydive? I remember hearing a thud, feeling my body hit the ground. Or how you would react if you were being attacked by an alligator? At the end of my leg is this huge alligator head on my leg. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a victim of an attack. Dragging me into the bathroom and saying, I'm going to kill you, now you're going to die. You'll hear from a man who discovered a baby. How could this be? How could there be a baby on the ground? And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Plinky County 911. There's a man at my back door. He's trying to get in. What Was That Like is a podcast about real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at What Was That Like. This episode is sponsored by ExpressVPN. If, as a society, with our eyes wide open, we choose through the ballot box to have ever longer sentences and ever more vindictive punishments, provided we know, as a result of those policies, that I am 50% more likely to be murdered and my daughter is 50% more likely to be raped or my son is 50% more likely to be raped, then I would just about accept that that's democracy in action. It would still be wrong. Hope you're all doing well on this fine summer's day, or winter if you're in the southern hemisphere, as many of you are, or also winter if you're listening to this six months later than it came out. And I hope you're all staying out of trouble too, as today's guest, Chris Dor QC, will tell us that's becoming harder and harder as more and more people are being incarcerated with tougher sentences. Being tough on crime is a vote winner. It appeals to our primal urges as well as our sense of schadenfreude. There but for the grace of God go I, we think. Let's punish them. But there's sufficient evidence that such tough sentences and appalling prison conditions, in the US and the UK in particular, lead to more crime, not less, making the world a less safe place for you and your family. Called to the bar in 1993, Chris Dorr is one of the UK's most successful and influential barristers. For non-Brits, that's a lawyer who specialises in representing clients in courts and is a very prestigious role. He's featured on TV programmes such as the BBC's Crime, Are We Tough Enough? and his groundbreaking book, Justice on Trial, Radical Solutions for a System at Breaking Point, is out now in all the usual places. I loved it and learned a lot from it, and it's written in a way that even a layperson like me 
can really enjoy it. There's a link in my show notes. We talk about whether drugs should be legal and if so, which ones. We'll look at alternative systems that could work better than prisons. Chris has worked with serious organized criminals and served in high-profile trials. He's seen some pretty shocking stuff over the years, so buckle up for this fascinating and scary ride. Unfortunately, we just didn't get the time to go through all the questions I wanted to ask. I could have listened to Chris for hours longer, but hey, maybe another time. Find Chris on Twitter on at CrimLawUK and watch his YouTube videos on youtube.com slash ChrisDawQC. I'm on at AndrewGold underscore OK on Twitter and Instagram. And do subscribe to my YouTube page, youtube.com slash AndrewGold1 to see the video clips and episodes from the podcast. As ever, you'll find the bonus interview on patreon.com slash AndrewGold or the Patreon app. And you know what I was thinking? If every one of you got one more person to be interested in this podcast then i could actually do this for a living so if you love it if you like it please do convince all your friends the ones who do like podcasts or even if they don't to give this a listen uh for now here's chris just now let the people who are coming back here know that i'm recording so they don't jump burst in and start shouting <laughs> yeah i've warned my girlfriend as well because she's going to be coming back halfway through and i said don't interrupt chris doors here so don't shout i'm saying my girlfriend the same thing okay right so um i'm gonna um chris record okay i'm recording so i'm all yours so thank you for coming on tell me how was how was uh, ross kemp was that nice i just watched uh, that interview just an hour ago was it fun meeting him well i think ross is a really good interviewer uh, i think he's um you know he, he's someone who he, he's been around the prison systems all over the world he's a really kind of um you know um you know well-respected broadcaster and, and to be honest it was one of those interviews where we were only sort of scheduled to do i think 40 or 50 minutes and we ended up doing almost two hours because we got on really well. Um, you know, he, he was really interested in the subject matter. And to be honest, um, I, I mean, I'm sure you're going to be a great interviewer too. But, but there is something about that kind of real kind of experienced and polished uh, kind of broadcaster that, 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 that really kind of brings the best out of the subject matter and makes it flow and makes it interesting. So, so I was, uh, you know, I was, I was really happy to speak to him. And, uh, and, and, and subsequently, we, we, we've gone on to have other, other conversations about possible projects together and TV work and stuff like that. So, so yeah, no, it was a really, it was one of my favourite interviews, and I've done many, many over the over the past couple of years in promoting my book oh. and uh, for yeah. and obviously when there's sort of news news issues that I'm asked to comment upon. Um, but that was one that I particularly enjoyed, and I thought it was really in depth interview, and he got into some of the uh, some of the real nitty gritty of you know what makes us tick as criminal lawyers. So you know, it was, it was good fun. I enjoyed it. But yours will be better, Andrew, no doubt about it. <laughs> mine is the best. If you don't leave this show saying that was the best one I ever did, although mine, see, the difference is Ross is a lot more as you say he's uh more specialized and uh he knows a lot more about law and those kind of things my audience is a bit more mixed they're very general so which is why the first question i'm going to ask you is something he wouldn't have thought to ask you but there are americans and other non-brits in the audience what is a barrister okay so we in britain or in england well actually in scotland as well we we have a rather unusual legal system where we have the legal profession is split into two so most countries, including the US, have a fused profession. So all attorneys or lawyers are essentially the same. They qualify via the same route and you practice in, in, in under the same sets of rules. That, of course, 
even in those countries, you have lawyers who specialise, like I do, in being a criminal advocate and going to court and doing jury trials. And you have other lawyers that specialise in kind of drafting documents or advising clients without going to court. In our system, we, we've, for many years, have had a, this split between principally barristers do the advocacy. So that's the courtroom appearances in the more serious and complex cases and highly specialised uh, advisory work. Um, so we tend to be much more specialised than our counterparts in the profession in Britain who are called solicitors. And, and right. principally, they are more concerned with giving advice to clients uh, drafting of documents and acting in sort of in a litigation capacity rather than necessarily going to court and doing advocacy. Now, they're not fast rules, but the broad the broad distinction between a barrister and a solicitor is that a barrister is the one who goes to court and is the specialist and we wear all the, the wig and the gown and all the stuff that people are familiar with. Solicitors on the whole don't do as much of that kind of work as we do and tend to be more general in the way in which they uh, operate. So they tend to be quite so highly specialised. Uh, so basically, we're the ones that wear all the fancy dress like you see on TV or in the movies. We go along and we do all the glamorous bits, basically. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Is it a bit like the American movies? Because uh, forgive me for being a bit glib, but it, it seems like the barrister one is a lot more fun than being a solicitor. Like you get to dress up, you get to walk around and uh, Tom Cruise in A Few Good Men. Is it like that? Well, do you know what? Tom Cruise in A Few Good, Good Men is one of the movies that I go back and watch whenever I'm a little bit jaded and maybe a little bit kind of case-worn from doing trial after trial and thinking, oh, you know, this is really hard work and I'm really kind of drained of energy. And I watch that movie and I think, you know what? There's a reason I do this. And it's because it is actually as cool as that. Although I've never sadly got to cross-examine Jack Nicholson in uniform. But um, but it's all wear, all wear navy whites either, like Tom Cruise does in the movie. I've never had either of those experiences. But in broad terms, the cut and thrust of the courtroom, the kind of the cross-examination, the dramatic verdict, all of that is absolutely part of my world. And, and it's the, one of the main reasons why I do the job, because it's, it's so intrinsically fascinating, so intrinsically dramatic, and actually very thrilling to be part of something quite so serious, where the stakes are so high. I think people from the description, I mean, barristers are very high status as well. Uh, something you covered with Ross as well, I was just watching that, um, is that the vast majority I imagine are from sort of very private, uh, posh education, uh, educations and backgrounds, whereas yours is a little bit different from that. You went to a comprehensive school. Are there many others who did, or are you, are you a complete lone ranger in that respect? No, there, there are many others. I mean, it's wrong to say to say that the majority of barristers are privately educated. I think it sits at about 40% are privately educated. Right. And, and of the rest, a significant number will have gone to selective grammar schools or selective state schools rather than sort of bog standard comprehensive like I did, if you like. Um, but of course, those numbers are massively larger than the proportion of privately educated people in the country, which sits at about 7%. So, so there's a huge over-representation in statistical terms of, of those from more wealthy and privileged backgrounds, undoubtedly. And the higher you go up the profession to people like me who are QCs or judges, high court judges, and the higher you go up the, the kind of the tree, if you like, um, you know, the, the, the more uh, kind of ingrained that phenomenon is and the more likely that there's this over-representation of public school and private school educated um, uh, people. Um, and that's something that I'm really passionate about trying to change. You know, I get, I get involved in social mobility charities, particularly in the legal world. I, I get involved 
in the, the, the scholarship programs which exist. And I interview candidates for scholarships to try to fully fund students from sort of less privileged backgrounds, um, like, like mine, frankly, um, to, to get them through the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the very expensive education that's involved in becoming a, a lawyer of any kind and, and, and a barrister in particular. So, so you're right to, 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 to draw attention to that particular phenomenon. But, but I'm certainly not a lone ranger. I mean, there are, there are many others. Uh, you know, in a profession um, of, you know, something like, I think, 18,000 barristers now altogether, about 10% of the profession are QCs. Um, so there are, you know, obviously there are thousands of barristers who went to state schools. You know, there are probably hundreds of QCs that went to state schools of one kind or another. Uh, but the truth of it is that it is much more difficult to get there if you don't have the privilege of a, of a private education and in particular an Oxbridge education, which is still really overvalued, in my view, in the profession. Uh, and so, you know, anything that any of us can do to give a lift to students from less privileged backgrounds, give them confidence. Confidence, frankly, because that's one of the things that I think is the hardest. When I mean, I go and speak in schools all over the country. It's from students as young as sort of twelve or thirteen up to sixth form, and and of course university students. And when I go and speak in state schools to sort of younger age groups and that sort of you know secondary school age. The biggest problem is not ability, it's not intelligence, it's not any of those sort of qualities or natural uh, kind of talents. It's that they just don't believe that, that, that someone like them or from their background can actually go on to become part of what is, a, as you say, a fairly elite profession. You can do it. You know, if you're a bright, able, articulate person, it doesn't matter where you come from, you can, if you wish, become a barrister, just as... You can become pretty much anything else you choose if you put your mind to it. If you if you if you really kind of uh, kind of push yourself in terms of academic achievement and in terms of networking and trying to make contacts. And, and I'll tell you one more thing, Andrew. While we're on this subject, the most gratifying email I've ever received, and we, you know, we've all received millions of them now, was from a young man who, at the time he sent me the email, was twenty two years of age, and he wrote to me to say. Six years ago, I was 16, and you came and talked at my school. Now, as it happens, it was my old comprehensive school in Milton Keynes that I went back to to do a wow. talk at. And he said, oh, you talked about law. I hadn't re really kind of realized or thought that someone from that school could do it. And here I am. I've just qualified as a solicitor. So, or, or I just, I just finished his uh, training uh, contract as a solicitor. So, you know, that was quite remarkable that to receive a message like that, because you, because usually I do these talks and I don't really hear anything again, you know, and it was such a long time after the event, uh, that it was just one of those amazing things. I thought, well, you know, even if it is only one out of all the hundreds of kids I've spoken to over the last 10 years or so going to schools, uh, one's better than none. So it still makes it all worthwhile. I know there's been others as well, you know, and I've had messages from others actually since then. I was just thinking as you were talking about that confidence thing. So I did go to a, quite a posh school, but I think there's also a class thing involved because my parents both left school early. And the idea of university in my family was like a nonsense. So even going to a school where everybody was off, I should explain for Americans, Oxbridge is Oxford and Cambridge, uh, where the top university, people know what Oxford and Cambridge are. Okay, but you know, that was out even at this really top school the idea of something like barrister to me was like a million miles away no way i want to talk to you about express vpn if you don't want people tracking your internet activity and using your data for their greedy purposes then incognito mode 
is not enough. Your internet service provider still tracks every move you make. They can legally sell that data to ad companies, which is why even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN reroutes your internet connection through secure servers and keeps your browsing history safe through the most powerful encryption available. While I'm using ExpressVPN, I don't even realize it's on. It just runs quietly in the background. You click a button and voila, you're protected. ExpressVPN is available on all devices, including phones, computers, and smart TVs. So there's something to think about. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com edge, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash edge. Expressvpn.com slash edge to learn more. You, you talk about, um, uh, as you say, growing up and uh, your father being a builder, and you worked as well building sometimes, and, and the conditions, as especially in winter. Could you tell me a bit about that and how it shaped you? Well, it's, a very, it's very interesting. You know, I have talked about this or written about it as well in the past. So, so yeah, my dad was an incredibly hardworking man. I mean, he's retired now some years ago, but, um, but, but he was incredibly hardworking and he used to often work seven days a week. He was self-employed, so he, he didn't work, he didn't earn money. So he... Um, like me, but but his job was a bit bit harder in many ways than mine. Um, but but you know he 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 worked relentlessly to you know just to to pay the bills and he, you know we, we you know we wanted for nothing as children. We were we we were you know very well fed, very well housed. You know we went on holidays. You know there was no kind of it wasn't a, um, there was no poverty and deprivation. But there was only one reason for that because of my dad working so hard and my mum actually she she worked as well as a, a, in shops uh, and and then in later life she became a care assistant in a, in an old people's home. Um, but they both worked incredibly hard. Um, but but yeah, as I became a teenager, I was quite physically quite large, and my dad, as I say, worked self-employed on his own. And so he, he you know he would say to me, "Look, I've got a lot of work on. Do you want to come and do some labouring work at the weekend or or in the school holidays?" Um, and I think the one that you'll probably ask me about was I remember one particular site that we worked on. I think it was in December. It was certainly in the middle of winter because it was very very cold. Um, and we were working on this site for a long day and sort of towards the sort of late afternoon when it was going dark and yet we had to put up like electric lights just to see what we're doing. Um, now I couldn't feel my hands anymore. It was so cold. I had gloves on, but it was just so cold and you, you're handling very cold sort of building materials and so on. And, and, you know, my dad said to me, um, you know, Chris, really, you, you don't, you can, there's, you can do better than this. And, and, and that wasn't to disparage the job that he did, but he was just looking at me saying, you don't have to be on building sites on your knees in the freezing cold for a job like I do. I mean, my dad left school at 15 and, um, you know, and didn't have any qualifications and just worked continuously from the age of 15 until he retired uh, in his sort of mid 60s uh, or even like late 60s, I think, when he retired. So but but that kind of conversation, I'll never forget it because it, it, it's really quite a thing when you're, your dad says, I. You know, and I guess all parents should want this for their kids. But when your dad says, look, I, I, I you know, I, I'm happy with my lot, but I think you can do better. And I, and I, and I think I think that was a really powerful moment for me. And, and I also, I think looking at that history, I mean, I worked on not just construction sites, but but lots of kind of small part time jobs and, and different kind of things. And I have to say, none of them filled me with joy. I mean, you know, you know, that doing hard work, physical work, or, or really boring, laborious work, 
it, it, I did so many of those jobs and you know, I worked in a chicken factory sorting eggs into different sizes, you know, things like that. The idea of doing something like that when you're quite bright and articulate and, and sadly so many young people from backgrounds like mine and, and of course from those who are even far worse off, you know, for example, in the care system and so on, just sadly, however bright they are, they don't get a dad to say to them, look, actually, you can do better, focus on your yeah. studies, you know, look ahead and see, you know, the sky's the limit. And so on. And I had that from both of my parents who were really kind of like, you know, complimentary about my kind of natural abilities. And they could see I was, a, you know, I was a voracious reader. I was always fascinated by politics and arguing and talking. So they could see that I had these kind of ingredients, but they, they, they wouldn't have put two and two together to say that means that you're going to be a lawyer because lawyers were outside of their world. We didn't know any. They didn't know any. Um, and so it was outside of kind of our family life, you know, the idea of going into a a profession of, of this kind, whether it's law, medicine, or any other. Um, but I was definitely took a huge amount of inspiration from bo both what my dad said on that occasion and, and on other similar occasions, but mainly from his work ethic. And, and if I, you know, I took many things from my dad because he's an amazing uh, person, but, but work ethic, that willingness to go out at seven o'clock on a Sunday morning in December and work on a building site for 12 hours um, or more even, you know, that, that, huge commitment and ferocious work ethic is something that I you know I, I don't think I've even got half of it but but half of it has been enough do you recall when you started to appreciate that because often as a kid or a teenager I mean, my dad used to say to me all the time oh you're not working hard enough and then it's it's only a de often it's a decade later when you find oh god I became quite hard working like him but I, as a teenager you don't often don't respect it I think put joining the dots between my dad's personality, his ferocious, as I say, hard work and, and, and work ethic, and, and my own kind of uh, approach to my job, which is a completely different job, I, I think probably only around the time that I started to have my own children, which was in my, in my mid-30s, I think, I think it's, only, it's only then that I really kind of reflected properly and, and, and realised, you know, when you're looking at your own children and you're looking back and you're thinking, well, how am I influencing my children? What are they seeing of me? And it was as a result of kind of reflecting on that. I, I'm not, there wasn't a sort of one moment, but, you know, and, and also to be honest with you, having done quite a lot of media interviews and, and having done quite a lot of writing uh, uh, around social mobility and so on. So part of that process has made me reflect on, on, on where where I got my drive from, which I undoubtedly have a lot of it. Where did it come from? And and then other people have said to me over the years, you know, you're, you're just like your dad. You know, you're so like ferociously determined. So over the last 15 years or so, I think I've had a growing realisation of just how important his contribution has been to, to the way that I think. Both, and it's interesting because we could get into nature versus nurture. I think it's both. I think I think both from watching and seeing him as a child, bearing in mind I left home, you know, over th well over 30 years ago, uh, but seeing him as a child and also in later life. But also I'm absolutely convinced that there's a, there's a genetic kind of influence there as well. I, th I think I think even if even if I'd been adopted, I think there are there are many, many things about my dad that just are just in me. I massively appreciate the, 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 the every, everything that he did, and, and, and I don't want to underplay the role that my mum played as well as, as, a, as an amazing nurturer, which I think is something that's sadly missing from an awful lot of young people in our society these days. Is that just basic day-to-day -day nurturing, whoever it's from? 
you know, because parents are so overloaded with work. There's so many kind of pressures on family life that, that having the time to be able to just spend nurturing in the most basic of ways, even if it's just cooking meals or just being around, you know, is, is often missing. And I got that from my mum and she was an enormous sort of part of my kind of upbringing as well. So, so in very different ways, I think they contributed to, 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 to making me, you know, able to pursue the, the career that I have and, and all the other things. And, and, and when it's missing, I think we as a society need to be looking at how we can fill that gap for, for so many young people who don't have it. How can we start to do that? And and also, I want to ask, it's quite a vague, all-encompassing question, but what inspired you to write Justice on Trial? How we can sort of fill that gap uh, for our young people, I think I think we just need to, 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 to invest in, in children, generally. I think we as a society, we, 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 are, we invest very little in our children. You know, we spend a lot on the education system as a whole, not enough in my view, but I just don't think we focus on the needs of children as a priority as much as we should. And that, that means, of course, the education system. But I think absolutely vitally that the, the, the most disadvantaged young people in our society, and, and there are many, many homeless children in our society. There are many, many children, as I say, in the care system whose life chances statistically are extremely poor. You know, the, the prospects of someone who's in care, they are 14 times more likely to go to prison than someone who's not been in care, and infinitesimally less likely to succeed in education or anything else. And that's not because that group is less intelligent or less able. They're just, it's just random chance that they happen to, for one reason or other, have ended up in the care system. So I think for me, focusing resources on improving the lives of the most disadvantaged young children across the board, that's diet, that's education, that's giving them access to sports and, and other opportunities like that. Uh, and, and also looking after their sort of welfare and psychological needs uh, where they're not being met by a, by, by a parental structure. I, I, you know, I'm not an expert on children uh, other than sort of the, the way that we all are. But I know that, that those are areas of our public life that we hugely underinvest in. And, and, and as a result of that, sadly, very, very many young children and young people emerge out of a childhood of fairly a fair degree of misery to a life often of a lack of success or even worse, sadly, ending up in, in the custodial system and the sort of the, the revolving door of, of, of crime and prisons. So I would invest heavily in young people. Now, um, so, so, you know, we could go on all day about that, but, but to answer your second question, why did I write Justice on Trial? Well, the, the, the answer to that is, I think I've always had this itch to write something, you know, to write. I've always, you know, I used to write short stories as a kid and I kind of always felt like I'd really like to publish something. So as a result of that, I just started to write some pieces for The Spectator, for The Independent and a, and a few other newspapers and magazines. Um, and, and, and one of the pieces I wrote sort of reflected my very strong held view that we've gone completely wrong on drug policy uh, and that, we, you know, the prohibition of drugs and the whole misuse of drugs act from the early 70s has had this massive negative impact on our society. It's led to a, an explosion in the use of of, of certain forms of drugs, heroin in particular, um, and it's led to the criminalisation of you know vast tracts of our 
population, particularly in the city areas and certain communities. And, 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 and it's led to massive amounts of violence and death and, and, and drug wars. And, and everyone's familiar with, with, with what's gone on on the streets. So I think that's because that subject was so important to me. I wrote a, a piece that argued for the legalization of all drugs, licensing and regulation of drugs, not just a free for all, but there would be licensing regulation in place, but they would be legal. And people could go to licensed premises and they could get heroin or cocaine or ecstasy or whatever. And I'm not, as I say, I'm not saying selling them like, you know, sweets or something like that. There would have been an element of control, as there is with alcohol, of course. You, can, you know, not anybody can make and sell alcohol. There are rules uh, that apply to, to, the, to the licensing and sale of alcohol. So I wrote this piece in The Spectator, which came out in early 2019. So, you know, probably just over two years ago. Um, yeah. And then I got an email from Bloomsbury, uh, who subsequently became my publisher and also coincidentally pu- published Harry Potter, as it happens, but uh, yes. a, a slightly more successful uh, series of books <laughs> than, than mine, sadly. Uh, but anyway, um, they emailed me and said, completely out of the blue, and so we've, uh, my, my now editor uh, emailed me and said, you know, really enjoyed your article uh, about drug legalisation. Will you, will you have a chat with us about writing a book? And they came to see me in my chambers in London. We sat down for two or three hours, Jamie, who, who's my editor now, and, and one of his colleagues. Uh, and we talked it around. And then I think it was about three weeks later, we'd already got a pitch document. And the editorial board said, yes, we'd love to do the book. And so and then I had a copy deadline of nine months later, so uh, Christmas of 19, to get, to get Justice on Trial delivered to the publisher. That's very fast, isn't it, nine months? It is very fast. Um, and the only way I was able to make it happen, bearing in mind that I have a full-time job as well, uh, was to use some incredibly bright young researchers who, who were training to be barristers at the time. And I got a lot of got them to do a lot of the, the sort of the, the heavy lifting in terms of research um, so that that freed me up to travel. So I traveled to the States uh, and to Switzerland and various other places as part of the research for the book. But I could travel, in, do interviews with people and subjects for the book uh, and, and then when I got back, I had all of this sort of research material that they had prepared. And I don't do that in my day job either, because I always have very able junior barristers to, to do the legwork. And, I, and, you know, and, I, and, I, and I'm more of a strategic sort of team leader in my practice. So the book, it was a team effort. And, and I acknowledge the researchers very clearly in the, in the, in the acknowledgements in, in the back of the book. Yeah. Uh, I had a, enormous support from my personal assistant, Hillary, who's just an amazing force of nature. And she, she was reading draft after to draft and she's incredibly good at picking up you know my typos of <laughs> which I'm sure there were many so it, there was a team around it and my editor Jamie was an incredibly good editor and he obviously went through two or three very you know uh, lengthy uh, reviews and redrafts and so on we went to press uh, with the hardback edition in July last year and we're actually just coming up to the publication of the paperback which comes out on the 8th of July in Britain and and is available in other countries as well. Fantastic, and it's a beautifully written book as as well. Um, tell me then, because you you mentioned obviously drug drugs is a huge part of it, and one of the ways we go into the whole macrocosm of what drugs are and what they do, uh, we start with Gary, wasn't it? Was it Gary? I doubt that's his real name, is it? Oh, that was a murder trial. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It, um, it, the, 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 that, the, Gary, I think, was the name of the man who was killed. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I, I, and, and, and uh, I, I, again, you'll forgive me because I can't remember the pseudonyms in the book, so that's yeah, why I'm a bit good. nervous about about saying names. But um, but yeah, that was a that was a that was a murder case where where the the, the deceased was killed 
you know, over an argument uh, with drug dealers for 250 quid or thereabouts. It was a small amount of money. Uh, and they said that, you know, he was an addict himself. Almost everybody involved had either used drugs themselves or had some involvement in the drug industry. And, you know, I went up to this this mill, in fact, it was up in, uh, in near Manchester, um, at, you know, de- derelict, semi-derelict mill with not much happening and sort of, you know, trees growing out the windows and everything else. And it was, and, and, and it was absolutely tipping it down with rain the day that I went, which made it particularly miserable and, and grim. Um, but the idea that someone would have been kicked and beaten to death in a place like that over 250 pounds because there was a need to preserve sort of honor in 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 an illegal drug drug trade and then the whole thing played out in a trial one of them went to prison for life another one got two of them maybe got longer sentences and and it's just such a waste of human life and all of it arises from criminalization none of that would happen at all if drugs were licensed and legal and particularly if we had the approach to heroin treatment, which they have in Switzerland, which I describe in in the book, whereby in effect in Switzerland, anyone who's a a, a problematic or, or, or addicted heroin user is given clean heroin in in sterile conditions twice a day in a proper clinic, has access to full medical facilities and has absolutely no need to go anywhere near a dealer. Now, some still do, actually, even in that system, but they have almost no drug-related violence in Geneva where they operate this system. Um, and, and, you know, they still... And they have almost no overdoses. So so if, you, if you're kind of looking at what are the real harms... Of, of drugs. They are violence on the streets and, and the sort of the spin-off effect that it has and the health and harm impacts on users. So, um, you know, if you, if, you, if, you, if you remove those two impacts, then I think you'll, 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 you'll get rid of those cases of the kind that we were talking about and, and those awful kind of street murders and beatings and punishments that go on in the illegal drug trade, which, which are a, fa- a factor of only one thing, and that's that, you know, the illegal drug trade is incredibly profitable and very competitive, and the people who are in it, you know, really will will do anything it takes to preserve their business and their territory. Whereas, you know, a licensed, you know, pharmacy, you don't get that between two pharmacies, you know, on, on other opposite sides of the same street. You don't get the pharmacy owners coming out shooting each other for selling selling licensed products to each other. Or for that matter, the owners of two off licenses come come you know going head to head. You only get it in a market that's prohibited, and 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 yeah, I mean, time after time, when I began to reflect on some of the the cases, it, I realised just how many of them were drug related. You know, even if it appears to have nothing to do, I mean, that's a murder, but it's it's, it's not really. It's just part and parcel of the drug market, and so so many cases and so many lives are destroyed by, you know, just the mere fact of drug prohibition. And, and, and it's, it's utter insanity. I describe in the book talking to judges in America who have to impose life without parole on young black men for, you know, for drugs offences. And they, and they were sitting there telling me, in, off the record, of course, that this is insanity. This, it, doesn't, it, it's, it's, it perpetuates the problem. It destroys communities. And so I turned around to one of them and said, yeah, but why, why did you do it? And he went, because if I, if I did anything against the system, I wouldn't be re-elected because they're elected judges out there. I wouldn't be re-elected. I wouldn't have a job. So I've got to, I've got to toe, the, toe the line because that's what the public, that's what the voters want. Why? Why do they want that? I think it's interesting. I've had this conversation so many times. And I think the reason is a, is a simple one is that, that, you know, people are easily persuaded by really emotive, simple messaging 
around, for example, the victims of crime or the harms of drugs. You know, they, they, and, and people don't step back and say, OK, well, the reason there are so many victims of crime and the reason that there are so many harms from drugs are because it's prohibited, not because, you know, there's the, the weeds that, that blew 20 million years ago across the plains of sort of um, northern China, uh, which was the, where the cannabis plant originated. I mean, they weren't doing any harm to anyone. They weren't doing any harm to them when they were smoked in tribal circumstances and still are smoked in tribal stuff circumstances all over the world. The only point at which drugs became intrinsically and obviously harmful was the point at which we started to ban them. And then we created an incentive for criminals to sell them for a profit. When it when the system was, you took profit out of the system as it was historically, and as they have done in certain other countries, then a lot of the problems that people perceive as being the harms actually disappear. So I think it's an information gap between what people say they want, they want, you know, I, I've been involved this week in debating the release of a, of, of a, of a, of a murderer on parole. And I was on uh, Good Morning Britain a couple of days ago talking about this, Her, you know, and, and everybody, almost everybody was saying, I, this, this barrister you've had on, he's crazy, he wants to release murderers and what they should be locked away for life, you should throw away the key. And, and I get that kind of visceral kind of emotional response to really difficult and, 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 and nasty yeah. cases. But the truth is that when you follow that visceral emotive mindset through, you end up with mass incarceration as they have in the US, which is, you know, has got 2.3, 2.4 million prison population. And you end up with some of the highest rates of violent crime on earth. So, so you know, if you can just disconnect the emotion, which I understand completely, you know, a child killer in particular, you take these very extreme cases, if you disconnect that emotion from the evidence, you end up with a much more, or sorry, if you connect um, the emotion and, and base your policy, in fact, on the evidence, then you end up with policies that may actually work. Um, but but politicians are have to be elected. And so, you know, when I when I appear on television or, or do an interview like this, I expect eighty percent of the audience will disagree with my point of view. Now, because and that's just a rough figure. It may be ninety percent, but the point is, no politician is going to go to stand for election based on a policy that he or she believes eighty or ninety percent of those listening will disagree with, because like the judge in America, they'll lose. So what politicians do, understandably, is they pick the side that the eighty to ninety percent are on. The ones who believe in locking them up forever, the ones that believe that the system is too soft, the ones that believe that prisons shouldn't be holiday camps in inverted commas, all of that kind of mindset of like vindictive punishment based on just being as, as long sentences for as many people as possible. If anyone breaks the law, they should come down on like a ton of bricks. Not, not, not recognizing that, 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 as I said before, many of those in the criminal justice system are just damaged individuals. They've been damaged by being in the care system. They've been damaged by mental illness. They've been da damaged by abuse of one kind or another. And so they're not bad people, which, of course, as you know from the book, is, is, is one of the main themes. You know, I don't believe that people are evil. Some people commit evil deeds. And some people are dangerous and we need protection from those people. But once you start taking away terms like monster and evil and, and all of these things, once you start taking those terms out of it and just look at what do we need to actually do to reduce crime and to make the world safer and happier, you don't do the things that people think they want. <laughs> That's the point. The people think they want these tough punishments because they think they work, but they're wrong. 
So you would make drugs totally, totally, all drugs legal. I, I live, I'm in Berlin. I live a block from this place called Görlitzer Park, which is known throughout Germany as like the place where there are a lot of drugs going on. And it's just like, I don't really know. It feels like the police know they don't need to actually arrest these people. Every now and then they'll make a sort of show of it as if they're going to arrest people. They never do. And then, and then the the sellers go away and then they come back the next day. They're, they're always there. And I do walk through it thinking, like, oh, wouldn't it be all nice if it wasn't sort of, because they'll sort of hush over and they go, oh, do you want this? Do you want that? And I thought it would be nice. They could have a little, you know, little stall and it could all be legalized. And Well, it wouldn't be like that under my system, I'm afraid. I mean, I, I, I'm not in favor of total decriminalization of drugs. Okay. I'm, I'm okay. in favor of licensing, regulation um, uh, and legalizing. So all three. You can't have one on its own. I don't believe you should allow drug dealers to just operate with impunity any more than you allow anyone to brew up whiskey in their kitchen and sell it through their kitchen window. Uh, mm. That's not allowed. <laughs> You're not allowed to do that. You can't, you can't make spirits. You, you can make beer for your own consumption, but you can't sell it. Um, and so, so that, that sort of licensing approach, I think, is absolutely essential. Um, a, a decriminalized free-for-all, which is sort of what they have to some extent in the US in terms of cannabis in many states now, it's a disaster. Mm. Because what, what happens when you do it that way is you just allow people to profit with no control. So, so the very problem, one of the major problems that we have in our current drug market in Britain is that, you, is that the drugs that people buy, they have no idea what's in them. So unlike a bottle of you know, gin or, or beer or whatever it is, where you look at the label and it says exactly what's in it and exactly what percentage of alcohol it has um, on the label, you have no idea. When someone buys a little packet of white powder from a cocaine dealer or, or brown powder from a heroin dealer, they don't know whether that's 0.1% pure 1% pure or even in one case that I describe in the book in terms of MDMA, 92% pure drug. And that particular 92% pure drug actually killed a young woman in Oxford, a 15-year-old girl, I should say, uh, who, who had no idea it was 92% pure. And so, so that's the problem with dealers. If you decriminalize, you still have that problem that, they're, that whatever they're selling, it might be nothing. It might be selling paracetamol ground up into powder, or it might be selling almost pure heroin that's going to kill you the minute you have any of it. So I don't believe in decriminalization uh, at all. And I don't believe the American model where the same things happen. There's just been an arms race over the strength of cannabis. So in California and, and Colorado and the many other states where, where, where cannabis is legal, the strength that you can obtain legally it's so strong and so mind-altering and there's no label to tell you that and you don't know so wow. people are taking stronger and stronger strains of thc and of cannabis products in, in america particularly edibles which of course if you just think about it if you take an edible uh, of cannabis and you don't know how much is in it the impact on people's mental health and everything else is potentially really quite damaging now of course i accept so is alcohol, and many people are very seriously harmed by alcohol. But 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 people at least are not going to take a pint of beer and drop dead yeah. because it's ninety nine percent alcohol, because because that's never going to happen. Yes, of course there are long term health effects from from alcohol. Yes, yet some young people and others tragically die from short term you know sessions where they just overdose effectively on too much alcohol in a short period of time and either choke or something to death. That does happen. Of course, that's always going to be a risk and you can't remove risk altogether in our society. But, but if you legalize, license and regulate, you give people access to drugs, 
They have to go to licensed premises or some licensed system to get them. And at the same yeah. time, they're told exactly what they're getting. They know what they're getting. So even a 15-year-old, who, of course, wouldn't be legally able to buy drugs in my, in my kind of um, future universe. I wouldn't, I wouldn't license uh, uh, drugs for, the sale, for sale to children. But children would get hold of them, just as they get hold of alcohol. The difference is that if they got hold of some ecstasy tablets in, that, that were in a packet that had all the details on, they wouldn't, they wouldn't take 10 of them at once, you know, you know, in the way that they can take that amount of MDMA now because they have no idea what they're taking. So, so even, even though I'm not suggesting that you should allow children to acquire drugs legally, the mere process of regulate, regulating and licensing the supply chain means that everybody who gets hold of drugs knows what they're taking. And at the moment, that's not the case. Nobody knows what they're taking. You know, no, literally nobody does. And, you know, when you mix yeah. up strong drugs like heroin and cocaine often they're being mixed up in a kitchen mixer in someone's kitchen you know and or, or you know or cracks being cooked up in a pan you know on someone's cooker and and that's not you know when you think about the the huge amount of safety um, precautions that goes into producing paracetamol tablets that you buy in boots the, the massive amount of quality control hundreds yeah. of different layers of kind of checking and making sure they're all exactly the right strength, exactly what it says on the packet. 500 milligrams, exactly a paracetamol in a paracetamol tablet. Now, all of that goes into protecting you from being harmed by paracetamol. And yet, when people take heroin, cocaine or MDMA, there's no control at the moment at all. And they could be taking anything. And so that, for me, is a real part of the picture. So people often misrepresent my argument as being, well, decriminalise it all. Like you say, let, let the drug dealer set up a stall in the park. Absolutely no yeah. chance. That's the last thing you would do. Because if you yeah. did that, the dealers would be selling stronger and stronger drugs to try and get people more and more hooked. And, and really, like, actively marketing for profit. And I don't believe that you should market this. You wouldn't start with alcohol where we are now if you started from the beginning. There's no way you'd have this big commercial model where everyone can make a load of money out of it. You wouldn't do it that way if you started from scratch. But we are where we are. But we, but when it comes to alcohol, we have the, oh, sorry, to drugs, we have the option if we choose to reform the drug market to start from a position where there is, there is no legal and licensed market, so we can do it however we like. And if we did it however we like, we wouldn't make it commercially profitable. We would put it in in. Plain the sorts of packets that you get prescription medication in, you, you know, you, you you know the sort of white marks that say what's on the packet, gives you the dosage, etc. You don't, you wouldn't be allowing you know Marlboro ecstasy or whatever it was, and big adverts or any of that stuff. You wouldn't have any commercialization of drug supply. What you would have is access to drugs. And we used to do this with heroin in Britain until uh, the Misuse of Drugs Act, in that heroin users, of, of, of which there were only about a 1,000 or so in the late 1960s, habitual heroin addicts, they could get their, their heroin prescribed by a, by a doctor and they would get a prescription that would keep them supplied with heroin and they could carry on working and doing what else. They didn't have to commit a crime. They didn't have to go to a dealer. But then we brought in the Misuse of Drugs Act and that 1,000 went from a 1,000 in, in the late 1960s to 300,000 heroin addicts by the early 1980s. So just a decade later, we've gone from a 1,000 or so who got their supply legally through licensed uh, medical supply to a situation where we had 300,000 buying heroin on the streets and a massive explosion then in crack use as well during the 1980s and a huge explosion in overdoses, drug-related violence and, of course, criminality of just every description you can imagine. So, so that's kind of almost the best example of why 
the only market that makes sense or the only um, the only supply chain that makes sense for drugs is a licensed, legalized and regulated one, not a free for all based on decriminalization. Yeah, it's absolutely extraordinary, actually, what you're saying. Uh, and by the way, my idea about the park, it wasn't a fully thought out idea. It was something that I'm walking through with my girlfriend. I go, they should just be able to sell it legally because I don't know what I'm talking about. But it's very it's interesting. Of course, it would have to be licensed and everything. I went to America when I was about 19, right? And I, I've got a real sweet tooth. And I remember I was out with these Americans I'd met because I was doing some Camp America thing, looking after kids or whatever. And I was with these Americans. We were on a day off or something. And I was just tucking into this brownie, right? And I love it. And I had like the whole thing. And these guys were looking at me, these American guys. And they were just like, wow, he's, you know, wow, he's really, you know, into his weed. I hadn't ever tried weed. He likes the hashtag. Obviously, it was a weed brownie or space cake or whatever, as they call it. And I'm not you know, built for that. And I was just, I was passed out for, for days. And they were like, what were you doing? And I was like, it's a brown, I don't, you've got to, and I suppose that's a, a, a small example of, you know, you don't know what's in things. I suppose they should have warned me, but. Well, you, you, know. pre- you sort of proved my point. I mean, you, you're absolutely right that, that, you know, the, 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 you know, the edible sort of side of cannabis consumption in particular, whether it's in a hash cake, space cake, or, or whether it's in a jelly or all the other ways, and with lollipops and all sorts of things that, that, that they put it in. Um, you know, where you, where you have uncontrolled dosage, as you, as you did, and particularly if you're not used to it, there is very significant danger, you know, yeah. and you, you know, yeah. you, you were lucky, but I mean, and, and actually cannabis is a drug that rarely kills people in overdose. Um, but it can have very serious physical and other health effects and it, and it can have very long-term mental health effects when taken at that strength in particular. But other drugs taken where the, 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 the purity is unknown can literally kill you in an instant, you know? Yeah. Um, and so. Insane. The risks. Yeah, the risks in our current system. And the, risk, the risks would be there, as I've said, even in a licensed and regulated system. But what wouldn't be there would be the violence and the overdose and the death. And, the, and those are the things for me that are the worst problems. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. 
To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn dot com slash heretics to learn more. What about uh, prison? Because at one point in, in your book, I think you wanted to get rid of like the whole system as it is. And you posited a house arrest as a, as a potential better example. I mean, could you extrapolate on that for the listeners? Yeah, so so I do. I've got There's a chapter in the book called Why We Should Close All Prisons. And of course, that's a deliberately sort of extreme and controversial statement to, 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 to grab attention, because I'm not suggesting, obviously, that dangerous rapists and murderers and people who are at, at genuinely are a risk to the public should be allowed to be free in society unrestrained. Um, but the point I'm making is that in the great majority of cases, people don't need to be in prison as we know it now. So, you know, 69% of those in prison are non-violent offenders. They don't, they don't pose a risk of violence. They may pose a risk of committing some, some sort of crime, often a drug crime, of course, uh, which is a made-up, man-made uh, kind of crime, um, rather than violence, which is sort of an intrinsic human value that, you know, that not to be violent to other people, it seems to me. Um, but the point I was making was that even for those who are dangerous now and need to be in some form of uh, incarceration and, and not permitted to, to wander free. The only way that you reduce their propensity to commit crime is to normalise their environment. So, so a, pri- a prison in the current form that we have them, and there are so many Victorian prisons still around in Britain, you know, these these huge places like Strangeways Prison in, in Manchester and, and Winston Green in Birmingham, these gigantic Victorian places, you know, with, with, the, with the old-fashioned kind of uh, walkways and the and, and you know the, the nets that, that you know bits that people can sometimes be thrown over and all of that stuff these sort of awful old-fashioned kind of places and the problem with putting people in somewhere that is so utterly different to anywhere else you could ever be is that they just become completely divorced from society they have absolutely no connection with society. They often lose track completely of their family or people that they have relationships with because who wants to keep visiting and going through all the security? And it all it, it ends up that they, the only sort of social environment and family environment that many people in the prison system have are other prisoners. And, of course, other prisoners, once they come out, if they reconnect with them, are going to be likely to be committing crime or involved in criminality. So my argument when it comes to shutting down prisons is let's shut all the prisons down as we have them now. And not, not on day one. I mean, in a controlled way so that we kind of re, reorientate ourselves in terms of who actually needs to be in prison. And for me, that's people who present a real danger of violence or some other kind of violent, uh, violent threat to society. 
Um, so, so first of all, we you know deciding who those people are, and then we build custodial establishments. And I wouldn't call them prisons. I'd call you can call them anything else except prisons. But you, you know, a secure environment of some kind. Yeah. And you build places where the housing is very just like the sort of housing that we all live on on the outside. Uh, you know, apartment blocks or, or, or shared residential blocks, people with their own kitchens. You take away the bars, you take away the, all of that infrastructure and, and replace all of the kind of physical security. Of course, it'd have to be perimeter security on the outside to stop them escaping, particularly, that, as I say, those who are the most risky and violent. But once they're in there, you just normalise the environment so that when they come out and they work in a normal way or they are educated in, in the same sorts of facilities that they'd be educated in on the outside, particularly younger people. Um, and so by doing that, what, what you do is you reduce the, 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 the sort of clang of the gates effect, which most prisoners describe, which is when they're released, particularly after a long sentence, they come out of prison and they look back at this big red brick wall and they, and, and, and they hear that all these gates being slammed behind themselves and they're back on a pavement somewhere and they look around and they see cars and they see, and they just have literally, they have no connection with the world anymore. And they have nowhere to go. Many of them have got nowhere to live. Many of them have got, certainly not got a job. Very few have got a job to go to when they come out of prison. Something like, it's only about 6% of prisoners have paid employment within six weeks of leaving prison. That means 94% are still not working after six weeks. So what do you expect them to do? They're not, they've got to get some money from somewhere. They've got to find somewhere to live. And so, of course, what happens is they come out into this whole alien world that they don't, they're not really familiar with. And the only sort of network or support group they have are the people that they were in with and the ones who are already out or some connection of someone they're out with. And then they'll, they'll go, yeah, you can crash on my couch or you can have my spare room. And, oh, by the way, there's a kilo of heroin under the front door. And, by the way, if you want to make a few quid, get out there and do a bit of dealing for me or whatever it might be. And so unsurprisingly, 75% of them are back in trouble again within two years. So my kind of main philosophy around prisons is firstly, stop. let's stop badge, badging people as criminals or inmates or prisoners. And let's just, you know, they're human beings like everybody else who have done something, you know, that, that's unacceptable by the standards of our society. But they're going to be back in our society. Whether it, all bar a few dozen are going to one day be released back into society. So for me, the priority is not to sort of punish them or keep them locked up in these inhumane Victorian conditions. The priority is that when they come out, they don't go back in again. And, and more importantly, actually, they don't commit crimes against other victims. Because that's, if you think about it, and that's the fundamental purpose, surely, of the criminal justice system is not to just keep people locked away in terrible conditions. It's to reduce the amount of crime and harm in our society. And in particular, the amount of violence against people in our society, murders, rapes, assaults, domestic violence, all of these other horrific forms of, of, of violence that, that exist in our society. The criminal justice system should have as its principal objective to reduce crime and reduce the harms of crime. At the moment, it achieves neither of those things and reducing crime isn't even really part of the kind of overall ethos of the system. Everything is looked at on a case-by-case -case basis. We have these sentencing guidelines that say that this crime is serious and therefore you need to get a minimum of 10 years for this and a minimum of 15 or 20 years for that. None of that is linked to a plan. They're just random sentences that people dream up 
because they are part and parcel of, you know, the public's perception about a particular kind of crime. What it needs is to change the entire ethos from one of let's just reflexively respond to whatever the latest Daily Mail headline is. You know, whatever the crime everyone's... We had recently, we've had increased sentences for defacing war memorials, for example. You know, that's a story in the news. So let's just double the sentences. Let's make it more serious. But no one before they do that thinks, why are we, what, what, what are we actually trying to achieve here? Because the only consequence of increased sentences for, for, for war memorials um, is that there's a different, you know, there's a different thing in a particular sentencing guideline. It's not going to change the number of war memorials that get damaged, and it's not going to make a positive difference to society in any other way. So politicians love to increase sentences. They love to, 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 to increase the amount of time people spend in prison because it's popular. And because, you know, people go, yeah, quite right. Why should these terrorists be, be out, in, you know, any quicker? Well, let's make them stay in for an, uh, even longer. People respond yeah. positively yeah. to that, even though the direct effect of it is more crime and more violence. I, th- I wonder then if it's, we talked before about fear being part of why people vote for those more punitive measures. Does it also speak to a basic human desire for shaming, for punishing? Uh, just, does just Instead of justice, are we talking about maybe closure for a family when, when somebody might have killed their a family member? We want to see them suffer. Is And, and that, obviously that that isn't, that doesn't sound conducive to a, a well-working society, but it's a human uh, natural instinct. I, I, you hit the nail on the head. It's, you're absolutely right. That what, that there, there is a very straightforward reason why politicians appeal to that particular mindset. That you know, the eye for, eye for an eye, you know, kind of um, almost vengeant kind of mindset. And 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 the reason is because it is it is wired into us. You know, we we did have systems of justice and punishment, you know, 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 years ago. I talk about some of them in the book, you know, where physical chastisement and the death penalty and all of these things were very much normal and part of our kind of cultural kind of uh, makeup, um, you know, as, as human beings. And it, and it was that way all the way through the medieval period. And, and I describe in the book the, hang, the mass hanging of children in the Victorian era. So only a couple of hundred years ago, we were having mass hangings of children as young as eight oh in London for theft. So, so children caught stealing were being hanged in public. That was 200 years ago. So, so you know, not really not that long ago, three or four kind of lifetimes of, 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 of human beings ago. And, and, but, but my point is, so what? <laughs> so what if we've always had these base instincts? You know, we also had slavery 200 years ago. There's also, also you know, women couldn't vote until just over a century ago. And so it's hardly, you know, there are all sorts of things that we used to do and we used to think were okay. We talked about Alan Turing being hounded to death in the 1950s. Yeah. For being gay. So yeah. the fact that things have always been there and been part of our kind of makeup as a society doesn't mean we just carry on with them regardless. And sadly, this kind of really kind of vindictive approach to crime and punishment, uh, you know, this absolute Old Testament obsession with punishing people and, and, and making them pay a price and, and also victims' vengeance. You know, the victims should, should you know, should be listened to. If they, if they want him to be in prison for the rest of his life, then, you know, that's their right because they're the ones who are the victims. Well, all is true that victims should be listened to and indeed they should be massively more supported than they are now. But you can't have private justice. If you have private justice where the victim decides what happens to the to the offender, you just end up back in systems that they used to operate in ancient Rome and ancient Greece, where you know whether you could the rich people could buy their way out of the problem, and 
you know, and, 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 and it's what we need are actually to have values in our criminal justice system that reflect what we as a society want from the system. Now, I make this point, and I've made it a number of times. If as a society, with our eyes wide open, we choose through the ballot box to have ever longer sentences, as they have done in the United States, and ever more vindictive punishments, provided we know that that makes our children more likely to be raped and murdered as a result of those policies and not believe the opposite, the lie that that's not the case, provided we, we sign a piece of paper to say that by voting for this policy of ever-increasing prison sentences and life without parole for, for all sorts of crimes, I accept that I am 50% more likely to be murdered and my daughter is 50% more likely to be raped or my son is 50% more likely to be raped, then I would just about accept that that's democracy in action. It would still be wrong, but at least it's people making decisions with true information. The problem is at the moment that they are being misled by politicians who say, we need to do this and it will we'll crack down on this crime and there'll be less of it. And people go, oh, yeah, well, I want the one who's going to crack down. Obviously, he's the one for me or she's the one for me. Prissy Patel being an example who's our Home Secretary for your foreign uh, foreign <laughs> listeners uh, in Britain, um, and, and an ultra-right-wing kind of tough-on-crime and in inverted commas politician, populist politician. So they vote for that those kinds of policies because they believe that they will actually reduce crime. But that's where the system's broken down. You know, if people vote had to sign a piece of paper that said that they were voting for something that was going to have a terrible effect, but they wanted it anyway. Rather like, I guess, people choosing to you know, smoke a cigarette. I know it's going to give me cancer, but it's my choice. But it's no good get letting people smoke cigarettes as they used to and tell them they're good for you. I mean, they used to advertise cigarettes in the 1950s as being good for your health and good for your chest. And you should have, if you've got a cold, smoke a cigarette because it will help clear out the, you know, that's what's being done to our society about crime. The same sorts of lies are being told to the population as were being told to smokers in the 1950s. And the price that was paid for that misinformation were the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people from lung cancer. And at the moment, we are drifting in a direction, as they have in America, where tens and tens of thousands of deaths and lives will be ruined as a result of people being lied to about what tough sentencing and tough criminal justice policies actually achieve. Hmm. The problem is, I guess, and, and and you know this, is that you have to go to convince people. You have to go against the a wide uh, group of, you know, the, the general population's base instincts. And you have to get them to listen to what is a very nuanced argument instead of catchphrases and slogans. And the type of person who's listening to you probably is already on board if you know what you know what i mean like it, it's such a difficult one so i i'll you've got the liberal elite listening to your uh, podcast i've got the liberal elite i've got no you know what i don't actually we've got a mixture we've got a big mixture but but they probably tuned out halfway through this episode no they didn't i'm sure they're listening and uh it's 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 tough. It's tough. I mean, I don't want to listen. You know, when I'm voting, I don't want to listen to a nuanced thing. I, w- I want to hear. I'm talking about the base me. The inter- I want to hear someone go, "This is an obvious thing," and I go, "Well, I'll vote for that then." You know? It's, yeah, it's tough. I, I agree with you, and that's why I've written a book that says things like, "Shut prisons, legalize drugs, stop criminalizing children," trying to you know use the other side's kind of strategy of simplistic messaging, but going the other way. And I, and, you know, I, 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 one of the, I'm not a politician. I'll tell you one of the reasons I'm not a politician is I know that no one would vote for me. I mean, you know, it's a sad reality. No one would vote for someone 
who sets out the views that I set out and, and, and wishes to make the reforms that I want to make. Um, and that's a real tragedy to me, that, that, that you can't make an argument. And I'm, I'm not sure I agree that the argument is as nuanced as all that. I mean, all I'm saying is, OK, if you want to make sure that you have a huge prison population that costs you hundreds of billions of pounds or dollars and you have a massive level of crime, do it like they do in America. Because that's, that's where you, that's, you know, there you go. Do that. If you don't want that, do it like they do in Norway, which is to imprison hardly anyone. And the ones who are imprisoned are imprisoned in very enlightened conditions that are not dissimilar to the rest of society and who come out and lo and behold, hardly any of them reoffend. So make your choice. Do it the American way, where everyone's tough on everything and people are getting shot left, right and centre all the time and raped and murdered at astronomical levels, or do it like they do it in Norway and certain other countries and they have hardly any crime, which you want to do. Yeah. And if people want it the American way because it sounds great and politicians, you know, America is a great democracy in one sense, but it's also the land of Donald Trump. It's the place where you can be elected talking complete and utter bullshit. And most politicians in America are elected, talking complete and utter bullshit. So, you know, uh, democracy is a great thing, but often, sadly, it does lead to bullshitters becoming, uh, you know, uh, elected and being in positions of power. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make the argument is I, I feel I feel like um, I feel I feel offended by your allegation of nuance, Andrew. Mm. If I'm being honest with you, because yeah. I, I think yeah. it's that complicated. You know, you know, t- lock, locking people up for a very long time particularly when they're young, means that there will be a lot more crime in society. And that's a fact. But if you're happy with that, then sign up for it. Vote Boris Johnson. You know, vote Donald Trump. It's fine. Yeah, I suppose what I mean is, do you feel optimistic about getting through to the kinds of people who, who don't want, wouldn't vote in, in this way? No, I feel utterly pessimistic. I feel like it's completely impossible. Uh, I feel like every time I appear on a mainstream news outlet... Uh, you know, uh, and make these points to a mass audience, all that I get is either this guy's, you know, let let him have a rapist living in his spare room or, you know, what? how would he feel about his having to his daughter or, you know, someone should string him up, you know, or or whatever. So, 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 I mean, I get, of course I get, also get intelligent, thoughtful um, messages from people and emails saying, you know, I heard you speaking and I actually, you know, it's really interesting. I'm, I'm glad someone's saying it. But I would say that's about 10% of, of what I read in response to things that I say. So my, my level of confidence of ever persuading anyone um, uh, in the broader population or indeed any sort of politician with a chance of getting power is, is round about nil. Well, we get 20,000 listeners to this. I bet they've all been persuaded and I've been persuaded. Um, you're very good at persuading, but then you're a barrister. So you should be. It's my job. <laughs> you're obviously very good at it um right so did you get those questions i sent about the 10 these bonus quite you don't have to do them don't either, have to but do did you, i'll do them far away cool it's yeah it's was was that was that all right like, i had so many more things it's a bit like what must have happened with ross kemp because i had so many more things to ask you about actually being embarrassed and stuff but it's just the time and everything you ask me whatever you like andrew uh i might have to get you back on in a year or something are you going to do another book at some point I am at some point, probably, although I'm more interested at the moment in potential television documentary projects. And uh, frankly, book writing is, even if you have great researchers, is incredibly time consuming. 
Uh, whereas television, of course, because there's a bigger team uh, involved, uh, is 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 rather more efficient, time efficient in terms of my participation because you know I, I don't have to sit at a desk for months and months and months writing. I can I can be doing other things and and and, yeah. and have lots of other people working on the project uh, in a way that writing doesn't allow. So so I'm working on two a couple of potential documentary projects and also a TV drama series as well. So I'm quite interested in that side of things and it, and it may or may not mean that I that, that I put off book number two, which which ordinarily on the cycle I would have started work on probably late this year. Uh, or next year, with a view to publication in uh, in twenty twenty three, it may be that that goes back a year or so. I don't know. I mean, the paperback edition of Justice on Trials coming out on the eighth of July, and that has within it an update on COVID justice, so drugs in the COVID period, oh, cool. prisons, and the impact on children. So there's a whole new section at the end of the book, uh, which kind of deals with the the weird nuances, if you like, of. Of, of how there have been all sorts of strange impacts of, of COVID on, on crime. One of which your listeners uh, will find out if they, if they read the book, but they can find, I'll give you a sneak preview. One of which is a massive explosion in drug importation and, mm. and drug arrests. And how's that possible? Well, you can read the book and you'll find out. <laughs> That's a good reason for people to get the book. See, there are nuances. I'm sorry if I offended you about that before. I meant it as a compliment. Andrew, I'll tell you, I'm not really offended. But, 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 but the reason why I kind of mentioned that was because I one of the skills that I hope I have, and one of the things I think is really important to my day job as a, as a criminal uh, lawyer, particularly a jury lawyer, is that if you can't communicate to a jury a, an argument in a straightforward and kind of accessible and relatable way, you're going to lose. Yeah. So you, it's no good being a lawyer when you walk into a criminal courtroom. And if you stand in front of a jury and use lots of long words in very long sentences that sound very complicated and nuanced, <laughs> in inverted commas, the chances are the jury will fall asleep and you won't carry the argument. So, so I think it's really essential to be a really good trial lawyer, jury trial lawyer, um, where you have 12 people who don't have any legal knowledge or training and can be from every walk of life you can imagine. I mean, I've had jurors turn up 18-year-olds, because that's the, the, the minimum age for jury service in, in England anyway, uh, I've had jurors turn up with T-shirts that say, fuck you on them, and sat there. And yet there's another guy sitting at the back who's 70 years of old, who's come in a suit and a tie, and he's really smart, and he's taking it seriously. So you've got this enormous wow. range of people, you know, male, yeah. female, every possible race, all educational backgrounds. And you, and rather like, I guess, using through communicating through the media, you've got to be able to communicate with all of them in a way that is compelling and interesting and, and hopefully persuasive. Uh, so, so, so kind of the, the, it's, it's really usually what I try and do is simplify every subject. So however complex a case, I try and simplify it and boil it down to the three most important things that I need to communicate. Yeah, in the book, the three topics that I chose to try and illustrate the, uh, the, the, the point the most clearly were prisons and why they don't work, drug prohibition and why it doesn't work, and the criminalisation of children and why that doesn't work. So I applied the threat, the same kind of philosophy, if you like, that I take through to my professional life to the book, which is pick three strongest points that are as straightforward as possible and say, if you change these three things, society and crime and punishment will change dramatically for the better. Well, you do have a skill for doing that, and it's, you're right. It, it is uh, it's fitting for a, a barrister to be able to do that. Similarly to uh, doctors, for example, a friend of mine is becoming a doctor, and that's it's his pet peeve is other doctors who don't explain things properly and use big words 
uh, with their patients. And it's, it's the job of a journalist, I suppose, as well. Uh, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to speak to you, because you are very good at that, at breaking these things down in a simple way. I, it, it wouldn't have been great to have on a very dry barrister who speaks in those, using big words and things, because we'd all be a bit lost. So I hope it starts to get through to people, you know. I, I think, I, I hope your message does get through to people. Oh, well, that's very kind of you said. Do you know what? One of the, the other th- things about making these sort of ex- arguments at the extreme, so, so, so rather than saying, okay, well, it is a nuanced argument, and, you know, there are things about prison that are good and things that are bad, and kind of, but rather than doing it that way, and, and, and in fact just saying, let's shut them all down, one of the reasons for doing it that way is because, because it kind of forces people to say, okay, well, well, if someone like this can take such an extreme position, maybe there is somewhere in between where we are and there that, that I can kind of think about and live with. I can't, I'm not going to go that far, but I might go a little bit yeah. further in his direction than perhaps I thought the, I would. The Overton window, as they call it. Well, exactly. That would be enough. Yeah. Sort of a little bit yeah. of incremental shift. And, and you know, I, but, yeah. I, but I, you know, I'm realistic. I realise that one person writing one book, uh, unless they're Nelson Mandela, of course, or someone like that, is, just can't change the world. I mean, you, you can't. You, you, all you can do is contribute a tiny bit to, to, to a debate and, and hopefully fertilise a few minds. And I know, and as I say, I, I don't want to sort of take anything away from the small number of, relatively small number of sort of positive and engaged and interested comments I've had and supportive comments because, you know, incremental change is, what, what, what is how the world usually works. You know, there's unlikely to be a revolution over criminal justice. It's much more likely that we'll get, at some point, we'll get a government in place that, that will accept some degree of incremental change. And then when you see the benefit and you deliver the benefit, as they have in Switzerland over heroin, for example. Now, interesting thing about Switzerland, Switzerland, a very conservative country, as everybody knows, very wealthy country, but, you know, also has poverty and drugs and everything, as all cities and all, all societies do. The interesting thing about their drug policy, their heroin-assisted treatment in particular, is that it was decided upon by public vote in a referendum or a series of referenda. So right, yes. Switzerland is a direct democracy. So they have a referendum on virtually everything all the time, right down to local level. And they had to have a national referendum to approve the licensing of heroin-assisted treatment for drug users across the country. Now, that is, when you think about it, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Because they had these little experiments and they were trials and they weren't official. But people started to see what happened in their community when they brought in a heroin-assisted treatment program. What happened is the dealers disappeared off the streets. The, 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 all of the violence disappeared. All of, all of the, the needles, you talked about the park near you, but um, very famously in Switzerland, they had a public park which was full of needles and users and people shooting up and all the rest of it. So I put one of the photographs, um, very iconic photograph in my, in my book. And as soon as the parks were suddenly safe for children to play in again, because these heroin users are getting legal heroin, they're not lying around with needles out of their back of their knee in the, in the park in front of the children. As soon as those parks start, and the railway stations and all the other places where heroin users had gathered in Switzerland uh, many years ago, back in the 80s, and when AIDS, of course, and HIV had become a massive issue amongst intravenous drug users. Once the population start to see that it's working, it's making our lives better and safer, then they all vote for it. <laughs> Yeah. But you yeah. but somewhere yeah. along the way someone has to have the bravery to at least demonstrate it through through giving it a try. Now we we've got a tiny chink of light in Glasgow where there's a very a very small uh, trial project going on with heroin assisted treatment at the moment. Uh, there's talk of other trial projects and I'm in conversation with senior police leaders who are very much in favor of this. This idea of taking mm-hmm. heroin away from being a street dealing issue and into clinics and licensed areas. 
because they know that's what's going to solve their their street crime problem is if you get rid of the heroin dealing and you get rid of the heroin use on the streets. So, um, so, so, so I think you know they're, 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 for me, let's just see if we can just get one or two projects off the ground and they potentially are used as a sort of test bed and then they spread out and then who knows we might have heroin assisted treatment programs in the major cities and, and, and conurbations up and down Britain. And then I'll tell you what, life will be a better place and people would support it. Thank you, Chris Dore QC, for what was an insightful look into the justice system. I learned a lot that I had absolutely no idea about, and I'm so happy that I got to speak to Chris today. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, just a quick reminder, by the way, get your free three months on top of a year of ExpressVPN by visiting expressvpn.com ed. That was today's sponsor. Back on Chris, for a more detailed understanding of some of the concepts he was talking about, get his book, his brilliant book, Justice on Trial, in all the normal places. The paperback is out next month. There's a link in my show notes, as well as to his Twitter and YouTube pages. Catch our bonus chat on patreon.com slash andrewgold or the Patreon app that you can just download. It's pretty easy. Find the video on youtube.com slash andrewgold1 and do subscribe. Thanks to my newest patrons, uh, Michelle Ireland, with whom I have a nice Twitter relationship, the lovely Brett Zolkan, who is a big patron of the arts, and we had a lovely chat too. Uh, we podcasters need people like Brett. Uh, Maria and Wendy, I didn't hear back from you about whether to shout out your full names, but you know who you are, and let me know if you would like me to read out your full names. Uh, but you two were the first people to sign up for the discounted full year. So thank you so much for that. It's really appreciated. And I hope you enjoy the bonus stuff and the early access and ads free episodes. As I was saying, if every one of you could get just one new listener interested, I could do this as a full time job. Uh, please do review an Apple or Castbox. Last week I got one from Mook the Spook in the United States. Five stars, they wrote, my fave podcast of 2021. I have become a bit of a groupie for this podcast, recommending it to my friends and then following up brackets, aka nagging, to see if they have listened yet. I love that. Each episode I listen to, I decide that it's my new favourite. Andrew has a rare balance of empathy, intelligence, authenticity, humility and humour. He knows, that's quite nice, isn't it? He knows when to push forward with questions and when to hold space and listen. And his guests will just blow you away. Each story more unbelievable than the last. Keep on doing what you do, Andrew. The world needs more journalists like you. Oh, well, that was lovely. What a lovely thing to read. Uh, thank you so much, Mook the Spook. Um, it, I guess one of the sad things is when somebody writes a review on Apple, there's no, there's no way for me to know who they actually really are and, and to reply to them, which is a shame because I always want to reply. So at least I get to read it out here and hopefully they're listening. And I, I, you know, I, I really do appreciate reviews like that. That's all for the reviews this week. It was just the one. Although I did love the Instagram post from John Michael Lander, who's a TEDx speaker, no less, who wrote, I want to share an amazing podcast series you need to check out. I've been binging on them. Please share with everyone on the Edge with Andrew Gold podcast. Thanks, John. I really appreciate that. And I hope you'll tune in with everyone else next week when James Bloodworth will be joining me. James gained renown and acclaim upon writing his book, Hired, which I'm loving and I'm halfway through, about going undercover to work in an Amazon warehouse, to live on the streets as well, and to just get to grips with the the, the torrid conditions faced by some of Britain's working classes today. 
Uh, and, and I imagine it's pretty similar around the world in Amazon warehouses. For anyone concerned that I'm going woke or too lefty after today's light on prison sentences topic and next week's working class manifesto, don't worry, I've got famous anti-woke linguist John McWhorter coming on the following week to balance things out. In any case, I don't see the podcast as left or right, but rather about liberty over censorship. And both of those concepts can be found on either side of the political spectrum. See you next week. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.